Aloha, Fallon Forum. Hey, folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host here, as we broadcast from La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Before we launch into our conversation today, folks, I want to take a second to thank some of our local business partners here in the Des Moines metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, or supper. They've also got a catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. And thanks to Noche. Noche is Central Iowa's premier home for jazz and cabaret, attracting both national acts and local favorites and featuring a world-class cocktail bar. Check out Noche on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. And finally, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street, that's uh, one of my favorite restaurants, authentic Mexican food, uh, great service, uh, friendly service, and really affordable prices at Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. All right, folks, again, welcome to our program here. So uh, later in the show, we'll talk about um, one of uh, America's climate sacrifice zones. We'll also give you an update on the Iowa caucuses, not just on how climate is playing out in the caucuses, but on the overall political tone. We'll also talk about uh, the movement to deny quote, amnesty for fossil fuel companies. Channing Dutton will join us for that conversation. Uh, but first, I want to go to our phone and welcome uh, welcome to the program. And, Bob, I hope I'm saying your last name correctly. Uh, uh, Bob uh, Shavelson from uh, Alaska. He's a lawyer. He's also the father of two of the uh, two of the kids involved with a lawsuit against the state of Alaska for failing to rein in fossil fuels and thus bringing into question the very survival of of the next generations of Alaskans. Uh, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. And I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. You did. Well, good for me. <laughs> I don't always do that. Anyway, thanks, Bob. Good to have you here. So, um, now, the lawsuit is uh, is part of um, Our Children's Trust, I believe. It's part of the same movement that started in Oregon, uh, where kids all over the country are suing their state governments and the federal government for failing to recognize, well, for actually recognizing that climate change was a serious threat to our survival, and yet doing nothing about it. Yeah, actually, the, the case up here is a, a little unique because it's a, it's a challenge that says the state of Alaska isn't just doing nothing about climate change. They're actually encouraging the development of fossil fuels, which wow. is aggravating climate change. Right. So uh, that's what it's about. And... Uh, this uh, The current lawsuit is based on one, I believe, that was filed a few years ago that didn't go anywhere, but now there's a sense that things are changing, the uh, the way the lawsuit is being presented is different, and the evidence of climate change is so much worse that perhaps this time it might actually succeed. Yeah, and again, the, the previous lawsuit was simply a claim that the state wasn't doing enough, and this is different in that it's alleging that the state is... Uh, going in the wrong direction. They actually have an affirmative policy encouraging fossil fuel production. And let, let me just say, this whole this whole legal theory is founded on something called the public trust doctrine. The public trust doctrine is uh, a very old notion that dates back to ancient Roman law, but it's the idea that our government officials are essentially trustees for our public trust resources, our public waters, our atmosphere, and so forth. And as trustees, they have a fiduciary duty to manage those resources in the best interest of the beneficiaries, which are current and future generations. So that's kind of the, the legal construct uh, that this uh, case is unfolding around. And one might argue that of all the states that have done a, a terrible job at trying to um, address the climate crisis, maybe Alaska's done the worst. Uh, <laughs> and part of it has been the economic benefits that have accrued to the state uh, that have made it maybe difficult for people to say, yeah, it's time to do something other than drill for oil. Uh, as I know, Alaska is uh, – doesn't, doesn't every Alaskan receive some kind of a, a payment from the government because of the revenue generated from oil production? We do. Every man, woman, and 
grandchild in Alaska gets uh, something called the permanent fund dividend, which is uh, a portion of every uh, a barrel of, of oil and gas produced. There's a small amount that goes into a permanent fund, and, and that fund has gotten quite large now. I think the last time I checked, it's probably up around right. uh, $55 billion. So, wow. uh, yeah, so so there's that, but also the fact that oil and gas have been really the, the, the sole economic driver in our state. So the oil and gas industry has an undue influence over our right. legislative process and our executive branch. So a group of children uh, came together, perhaps uh, in some cases inspired by uh, their parents, in some cases maybe just inspired by what they were seeing in the world, uh, and uh, they filed this lawsuit. And again, you have uh, two of your kids are involved with this. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Has it been a good experience for them or very difficult in some ways? I think it's good because, uh, one, you know, Alaska's a big, uh, big state, and uh, they get to... Uh, uh, meet with and, and bond with uh, uh, kids across the state. So kids in native villages, they're in f- far-flung places. So culturally, it's very good. And they also get to hear about the, the different impacts of climate change that are unfolding, for example, in northwest Alaska or southeast Alaska, uh, and compare stories. So I think it helps them feel like they're not alone and that there's, there's people across the state that have similar concerns and they're fighting together. Good. And so right now, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court, the Alaska Supreme Court, has heard the case, and so now they deliberate, yeah. and it could be, uh, do you expect a quick turnaround on their deliberation, or might this take some time? It's hard to say. They, they could take as much time as they want, but we're hoping within the next couple months they'll come out okay. with an opinion. But I, I will say that the uh, one justice... Uh, said from the bench that uh, you know it was very unusual to see such a large crowd in the in the courtroom. There was there was probably over you know 250 people in that courtroom. So there's a lot of interest in this case. That's encouraging. And how many? Do you happen to know, Bob? How many other states have filed such cases at the state level? I don't know that. No, not offhand. I don't. I know there's several. Yeah, uh, and there's a federal and there's a federal case also. Right. And the federal but one is the, the is the is the well, obviously the big one, and and that's the one that Juliana versus um, I can't remember the U.S. government, I think, uh, but that uh, Juliana was a uh, Kelsey Juliana was one of the folks who was on the Great March for Climate Action back in 2014. Uh, we've been following that case closely because of its significance, because it's gotten this far. But again, that would have to go before the U.S. Supreme Court, which many argue has been stacked uh, with justices that are against anything uh, vaguely, remotely progressive. And so I don't, I don't know if you have an opinion about how we might expect that case to move forward. But uh, what's on our side, unfortunately, is the fact that the climate impacts are getting worse and worse, more and more noticeable, and perhaps uh, the fact too that uh, that uh, in the you know among conservative voters younger conservative voters, climate is a concern. And so, you know, maybe this is a generational thing, and perhaps we're getting to the point where we're going to start seeing courts rule in favor of young people like your kids, like the others in Alaska, like the folks involved with the Giuliano lawsuit, who are bringing forth, you know, a concern that affects them more dramatically than anyone else because they're going to live with the impacts of the climate crisis, uh, you know, far more severely than, than you and I are. Yeah, and I think it comes down to a very basic understanding. You know, when you look at our constitutions, whether it's the state or the federal level, you know, if there is a, a, a right to a life uh, in the pursuit of happiness, certainly a livable environment should be within those those rights that are protected by our constitution. Yeah. Well, Bob, I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to uh, switch gears and invite another Alaskan, Cat Haber, to join us. So, again, thanks for joining us, Bob. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So, uh, hey, while we're getting Kat Haber on the phone again, this is, um, this is a big deal. This case, especially the, uh, the, the federal case, the Juliana case, uh, which again involves, uh, I think, 21 young people from across the country. And, and again, some of the plaintiffs on this case were 15 and 16, maybe even younger when that case was filed. And many, if not most, if not many, many, if not most of them, rather, are sticking with it and seeing it through. Uh, and, you know, and it is going to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, conventional wisdom says that anything remotely progressive that goes to the U.S. Supreme Court is DOA. But that may be changing 
especially with regards climate change, because, again, so many people are now understanding what's happening. Uh, I'd like to invite uh, Kat Haber to join us on the call next, uh, from also from Alaska. Hello, Kat. Hey, uh, good to talk with you today. Yeah, likewise. Now, folks, uh, if you, for those who may not know, Kat and I were two of among 50 or so that marched across the country in 2014 for climate action with the uh, Great March for Climate Action. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. Are you still walking? <laughs> I'm still talking, for sure. We're <laughs> okay. talking about the, uh, the, the interesting juxtaposition between the politics in Alaska and livable conditions in Alaska. Yeah. So you're, uh, what, I, I want to hear more about what you're experiencing on the ground, but just your take uh, as somebody who's not, you know, intimate, you're, you're, you're not, you're not a, you don't have a kid or uh, you're not involved with the case at that level, but you've been tracking it pretty closely. What are your thoughts on what happens next with the, uh, with the Supreme Court in Alaska? Well, I'll, I would defer to Bob's uh, expertise in this area. So okay. I'll be uh, watching to see uh, none of us know what their timetable is. But I do agree that um, the conditions have changed significantly since the last time this case was brought. The awareness of all of the indicators that climate is uh, crashing uh, here in Alaska are quite evident from yeah. coastal village erosion, bark beetle kill, infestations, ocean acidification, let's, let's receding take, glaciers. Let's take some of those one at a time, Kat, because I think some people, uh, I, I think a lot of us have heard about these things, maybe don't understand exactly the climate link, for example, to coastal erosion. What does a warming okay. planet have to do with the coast uh, eroding? So uh, native villages have been continuously occupied for thousands of years, and they've relied on a very strong ice uh, kind of corridor in front of them to protect them and also to support them in hunting uh, near their villages. With the melting of the extent of the ice in the Arctic Ocean, that is uh, contributing to these villages eroding into the ocean so that oh. that natural barrier that protects them that had protected those villages from uh, storms now is melting and the tundra is melting the permafrost is melting so even the locations where these villages would relocate are not even uh, an option so uh, are they able to move further inland, or is that cause additional well, problems? That's, that's what I'm saying, is even these higher locations oh, okay. where villages have uh, indicated they would move to are now also gotcha. no longer livable. Yeah, because Basically of the what happens is, right, the permafrost kind of right. melts, and it ends up being a muddy mess, so you're not able to put foundations for infrastructure. Yeah, and uh, and you have a noticeable decline in, uh, in in glaciers as well. Those are melting. Yes, significantly. Uh, in the twenty five years that I've lived here in Homer, I look out my window and watch daily a, a, a glacier called Gruink Glacier, and that has receded substantially in volume. And um, that has been the case for nearly all of Alaska's glaciers. There's a visitor center about 45 minutes south of our largest city, Anchorage, which happens to um, be where half of Alaskans live. That visitor center used to open up to a large glass window that would show the Portage Glacier, which has now receded many miles behind. And now that window and that curtain opens up to uh, right. water. And a cynical mind might say, hey, great, a glacier's melting. Now that'll open up some area for agricultural production. That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> but not a logical way. <laughs> but, I, I mean, well, I hear, you, hear, you hear those kinds of arguments, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well... The 
what's at risk for Native Alaskans is their very way of life. Right. So they depend on um, what they can fish and hunt for for what they call their subsistence living, that is living off of the land, and that is slipping away fairly rapidly. Right. And again, I, I think the uh, the evidence is that... Uh, the, are the, the colder regions of the world, the Arctic, the Antarctic, Greenland, Alaska, are experiencing climate change at a much more rapid rate than, say, places like Iowa. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, our temperature has doubled. Our indicators are sometimes three times the rate of what was expected. Sue Mogger, who is a fish uh, researcher, for Cook Inlet Keeper here in Homer, Alaska, has been studying the rivers of Alaska. And the, um, the, the salmon can survive at a certain temperature. Almost all of the rivers that she has been studying, the, that, that range of survivability has declined where we expected it to be 50 hmm. years from now wow. is showing right now. Yeah, that, that is, uh, that's sad and it's disturbing. It, it impacts a lot more than just Alaska. Yeah. So uh, one more question, Kat, about uh, the impacts yeah. you described. You mentioned the, uh, the bark beetle. Now, mm -hmm. I mean, some people know that, uh, that beetles' ability to survive a milder winter has increased their uh, ability to destroy a lot of trees. But maybe that, that's um, that's the description I hear from people in Colorado, Wyoming, those areas. Is that the same situation uh -huh. in Alaska, or are we talking about some different kind of uh, uh, situation? No, it's identical. What happens is with the warming temperature, the soil dries out, the, street, the trees become stressed, and uh, the bark beetles are able, as you correctly described, able to reproduce twice in a season. So the tree is not able to um, extract those, uh, those beetles. So it puts the tree, basically what it does is it um, rings the tree so that the, the nutrients that would normally flow through the bark are, um, they are prevented from from flowing. So mm. the tree becomes stressed, it drops its needles, it dies, uh, and then becomes uh, uh, fuel for yeah, wildfires. Right. So it's a very similar, over yeah, very similar situation to out west uh, in, in the, in the uh, contiguous states. Yeah. yeah. We've had two and a half million acres of wildfire this summer. We've had the hottest temperature ever in Anchorage, 90 degrees, mm. on the 4th of July. It only would have taken a few years ago one hour at 17 degrees to kill the green aphid. We never got that cold that winter. And then following the spruce bark beetle infestations, we suffered green aphid infestations. Mm. So with these warming and drying conditions, Typical ecosystems and plant communities are no longer able to resist uh, these parasites. It seems like it's really hard for anybody to deny that climate change is having a huge impact. Uh, now, I'm curious, uh, one of the uh, noteworthy uh, Alaskans who were leading the charge against uh, climate reality was uh, Sarah Palin. A any sign of her up there in your community? Not much. Um, and I think she is um, yeah, she's not much of a uh, not much of a voice these days. Okay, I don't even know where she's living. <laughs> she's yeah. been so gone from the news cycle. Anyway, um, yeah, maybe at some point she'll understand that climate change is real and needs to be addressed. But uh, of course, the other guy we know that um, the other guy we know of uh, here in Iowa from uh, Alaska is Mike Gravel, who was running for president. Mm -hmm. he, he's he also is. He's 89 years yeah, old. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> he may, makes Bernie Sanders and, uh, and Joe Biden seem like young candidates, right? Yeah. I think he's actually tossed his support behind Bernie Sanders. I think you're right, actually. I believe that's true. <laughs> well, Kat, it's uh, great to talk with you again. I'm really excited to see how the uh, children's lawsuit moves forward. 
And uh, yeah. commend commend Bob and uh, you and all the kids involved with that, all the parents involved, all the attorneys who are involved. That's a lot of work okay. and an important piece of work. And I really hope that it uh, pans out with a positive ruling by the Alaska Supreme Court. Yeah, I would just say, um, even though what we call the rest of the United States, the lower 48, um, (laughs) even though you may not be feeling the the same kind of urgency that we are facing here in Alaska, it, it is coming, it is happening here, and we need everyone everywhere doing everything all the time as quickly as possible. As Greta said, act as if our house is on fire because it is. Yeah, that's a great summary, Kat. Thank you so much. Folks, we've been talking with Kat Haber in uh, Homer, Alaska, and before her, uh, Bob uh, uh, Shabelson, regarding the uh, Our Children's Future, Our Children's Trust uh, lawsuit in Alaska and about some of the deteriorating conditions in Alaska because of the escalating climate crisis. Kat, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ed. Have a good day. You too. When we come back, folks, uh, local attorney Chenny Dutton going to be joining us in the studio here for a bunch of climate talk and some and some uh, gander at the uh, the Iowa caucuses as well. We'll be back in a minute uh, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515 515- It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant... Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. 
With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Fallon with you here, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, folks, uh, Channing Dudden in the studio with me as we look at how we, uh, how we address some of the bigger issues uh, confronting those of us who are fighting for climate action. You know, there's been an argument that uh, just as states sued the tobacco industry and won uh, and have been talking about, um, you know, breaking up big banks uh, in the wake of what happened back in 2008 – there's more and more clatter about how do how do we uh, make sure that we don't provide amnesty for fossil fuel companies. I mean, there's, there's the example of Exxon, of course, who back in the 1970s knew that climate change was happening. They knew it, and yet they chose to go a direction that exacerbated it. So there's, you know, some saying, well, you know, we've got to let them off the hook, or, well, companies like MidAmerican, they're starting to do more good stuff with wind and solar, so we can let them off the hook. But um, there's a growing course saying, no, none of that. They need to be held accountable. And Channing, as a trial attorney, might have an opinion or two about that. I do, Ed. Thanks for having me on the sure, show. Sure, welcome. Well, you know, the, the concept of amnesty is an important one that we've seen play out over and over again over the last 60 years. Right. Uh, actually, last 90 years. We don't have to get any deeper than World War II to start looking at the concepts of amnesty because today we buy many cars from uh, the war machine that we fought uh, in World War II. Volkswagen? Volkswagen, BMW, hmm. uh, Honda. Okay. Um, you know, these have become uh, uh, glorified corporations in today's world. But just as with Johnson & Johnson and its terrible record of harming human beings. Nestle. Uh, Nestle. Um, uh, the Roundup scandals. Monsanto. Um, just as we see that these. That was just really right, coming into its own now. Right. Just as we see these scandals going on. Historically, what our justice system has done is allow these corporations to escape and to live on. And we do it through a variety of mechanisms, but the easiest way for people to think about it is, uh, well, what we see with Purdue Pharma. You know, they want to create a fund. They want that fund to be available to their victims. The fund is grossly inadequate. And then they want to escape into bankruptcy, and they want to reorganize, and they want to live again. And they want to, they want to come back in the opioid future right. or in, in some form of the drug future. Well, hasn't Big Tobacco been able to do that with vaping? Well, and with marketing cigarettes to uh, the rest to of the planet, the rest of the planet, and right. to younger younger people. Yeah, exactly. And so, the the greatest crime of all time, the greatest fraud of all time, is the fossil fuel industry. Well, and, and this there's some competition for that title too. Well, but this one is affecting every living thing on the yeah, planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because the 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 decline in the birds, the, the decline in the krill in the oceans, insects, uh, the, the decline you know, in the insects. Ice, no, none yeah. of them smoke cigarettes. But they all need a livable, sustainable atmosphere. And the fraud of the fossil fuel industries yeah. has placed all of this in jeopardy. And right now we have a, 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 uh, an exciting opportunity with this uh, presidential election in terms of the platforms of the candidates. Now, many of your listeners know that the candidates have come out with their climate plans. Right. And but most of them pretty good. Most of them pretty good. Um, most of them exciting because we're having a, an adult, grown-up conversation about climate solutions. Right. Greta Thunberg would be proud. Exactly. And and we, we, as she says, we need to push harder and we need to even move faster. But where we sit right now is exciting. And inside of that question uh, of the uh, climate platforms is a is this little understood issue. Well, 
What does it mean when a candidate says we're going to hold the fossil fuel companies accountable? That's the term du jour. We're going to hold them accountable. And I think it really boils down, and I've heard Kamala Harris say it, there's not going to be any amnesty for the fossil fuel companies. So what does that mean? Does that mean jail time for CEOs? That means uh, that means that doesn't happen too often. That means we're going to take them apart and not allow them to escape into bankruptcy and reorganize. And here's the thing: I've got a I've got an 18 month uh, old grandson uh, right now, number one grandson, and it will turn me over in my grave if that young grandson grows into a 64-year-old man where I am today, and he thinks Exxon is part of the solution to climate change. Exxon is already running ads telling us they're part of the solution. And it makes, it <laughs> makes me sick and every right. one but of your listeners. But they're very compelling. They, they know how to market uh, their strengths, and they certainly know how to market their weaknesses. And, and what, what's going to happen is the trial lawyers, of which I'm a proud member, we're going to start taking on, and it's happening right now. Right. The litigation is is everywhere. A lot of lawyers don't quite understand where the litigation is going, but I think I do. And this litigation is going to bring the fossil fuel industries to its knees because uh, almost immediately the attorney generals are going to join, the states mm-hmm. are going to join, the government's going to join, the entire planet is is uh, this this. Uh, emerging heat on the fossil fuel industry is happening everywhere, and they're going to want an escape hatch. They're going to want a route out. And I think the job of climate voters and people who are aware of what's going on with the atmosphere is we need to insist with our candidates that they adopt a strategy of no amnesty. Mm. And I'll tell you, here's here's how I – like if you were running for president, which would be Really cool and really great. Yeah, cool for you. Right, and 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 if you had if you had Pete's budget or Bernie's budget. Okay, and now now we're talking. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, you had their budget. What what I would say to you is I would say, uh, President Fallon, do you have the moxie to let the trial lawyers solve this problem? All we got to do is not let them escape through bankruptcy. Right. All we've got to do how, is not let them get away, how, and then let the trial lawyers. Right. How do you how do you selectively apply bankruptcy law? Bankruptcy is okay for certain companies, but not this one. How do you do that? Well, uh, in the era of Donald Trump, uh, we would f- first start by doing that with an executive order. <laughs> uh, we would declare a, we would declare you're, a climate you're emergency. You're talking the, the post Donald Trump era. Well, yes, but yeah. but but he's. You know, I, I've spoken. Uh, Talk before. about people who worked well with bankruptcy. Yeah, 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 right. Well yeah, it, yeah. He, he probably knows how to draft that uh, executive order right now and get his big signature going. Yeah. Um, but, but the but the concept is, um, if we're in an era, Iran's big signature. Yes, right. If we're in an era of um, broad executive power and the Supreme Court willing to con- uh, affirm it or back it up. It starts with just that simple stroke of a pen. Now, people think that's not possible, but who would have thought it was possible to steal money that's already allocated from the military to build a goofy wall that's not going to work? And yet our Supreme Court has said that's possible. So if you said to me today, see, you know, our, our problem with climate skeptics or climate delayers is they go, well, this will be very hard. This will be very difficult. But what they don't understand is right now in California, there's 2 million people living around San Francisco who are a lot more inclined to be aggressive about uh, PG&E, just the power company out, yeah, yeah. out in that territory. Right. How's that going? Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, so these people, right, you know, if there's 2 million people affected, there's 500,000 calling a lawyer right now. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a million calling their state, local municipal, federal uh, representatives saying, wait a minute, we need a different path forward. Yeah. And so so the idea of no amnesty for the fossil fuel industry is one that, that I am keenly right. interested in, and all it's going to require is the willpower, and then it will happen. So while we unleash the trial lawyers on the fossil fuel executives— That's what I'd like to do. Right. In the meantime, as we shift from a fossil fuel economy to one fueled by renewables and conservation and geothermal and whatnot, who's going to provide those services? Who's going to be the energy—what what does the energy portfolio look like? Are, are you asking me 
in an era where we we haven't even taken the first step, what the final solution is going to look like? Well, well, because those are going to have to happen concurrently. As we're sending CEOs from Exxon and other companies off to jail and disbanding those companies, preventing them from declaring bankruptcy, somebody's going to have to keep the lights on. It's probably not going to be PG&E, apparently. Right. But but this is this is the fallacy of the climate conversation, and that is smart, articulate people demand answers to questions that haven't been even fully formed yet. Mm. And that is, well, Channing, how is this going to work in 2075 when Exxon has been dissolved? How, how exactly will that work? Well, let me start with this. The city of San Francisco, as a regional government unit, tried to buy the power, the power uh, generation service. We've from, seen that happen here in Iowa. Yeah, from, most recently with Decora from PG and E. And so, so the answer is, I don't really know how it's going to work by the year twenty seventy five, but I know that it starts with the concept of why would we let the people, you know, because you alluded to this, but but the the, the fraud is compelling. Nineteen seventy eight, Exxon scientists wrote direct memos with the exact charts and graphs showing the rising CO2. 1979, 1980, Exxon outfitted their ocean-going vessel right. to measure the acidification of the ocean and the lack yeah. of oxygen in the How ocean. How is that not criminal? That is criminal. <laughs> I know. This is, this yeah. is well, no, outfit, I, let me back up. There's no crime in 1979 or 1980 when they outfitted the ship. There's no crime when the ship gathers the data. There's no crime when the data is reported in 1981. The crime occurs when, once they are armed with the data, they know in 1983 what the harm is going to be and that it's happening even then, and then they fire up the denial machine. Right. And that's, that's uh, intentional fraud. You could call it a fraudulent misrepresentation, mm. um, but, it, but fraud has many characteristics, and these companies are guilty of it. Now, does does uh, executive number 65 in the fossil fuel industry, does that person need to go to jail? You know what? That's an answer to the, in, the, in the future that I'm not going to waste my time arguing about. Do the corporations need to be held accountable? They do. And remember, what we've done historically is we have allowed government to shape the remedy, create the fund, and then let these corporations escape through bankruptcy. Yeah. And and what I'm proposing is we try something novel, and that is we let the trial lawyers do it. Now, be, before you before you jump on me, people <laughs> will say, well, no, 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 the trial lawyers, oh, my goodness, they're always suing people. And, you know, they're just a bunch of fat cats making a lot of money. But we've never tried this. But here's the deal. The trial lawyers take on the risk. They fund the litigation. And they let American juries feeling the sting of what climate change has done to their children to themselves, to their future, to their property, and to every living creature on the planet, I've got a lot of faith that the American people will issue the verdicts that will water the eyes and drop the jaw of everybody on the planet because the losses are in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. When can we expect our first trial? Uh, Those first trials are already taking place. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the protest trials. You know something about those? Yeah. Um, the protest trials are a version of climate litigation. Um, uh, in 2014, Liberty Mutual Insurance sued uh, the, uh, the suburbs of the city of Chicago for $155 million to cover insured losses from deluge rain effects that flooded basements everywhere. Now, surprisingly, that lawsuit gets dismissed after just a few months. Mm. But if you read the lawsuit, if you just Google Liberty Mutual, Sewer, City of Chicago, the petition is a it's a how to. Mm. It is it is a classic case of you adopted climate change as your standards. You violated those standards. We have one hundred and fifty five million in loss. Now, as big business does, uh, they kind of wash that away. There were some agreements made, and it's fine. That's right. you know nothing wrong with resolving it, but these these lawsuits are happening right now. But our media is so lame, and I hate to use the language of the president, but our media is <laughs> uh, our media is unwilling to report the reality of the climate harm. Like you know, Ed, I lived at twenty seven twenty six forty seventh in Beaverdale. Uh, in our first real home. And a block and a half from that intersection to the south, now the city of Des Moines has a permanent pump 
sitting in that intersection so that it can pump right. the water because out of, of the, the intersection because of the huge rain to protect the, the homes. Yeah, right. So there's this piece of equipment sitting in this neighborhood, and the good people of Des Moines are sitting there acting like, well, this is normal. This is not normal. This is crazy. It's the new normal, and we are in, <laughs> we are in serious trouble. Right, yeah. Now, now, yeah, now I'm all amped up. So, oh, well, now now that you're amped up, we're going to take a break. Perfect. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Iowa caucuses, and we'll look at how climate is playing out in the presidential caucuses here. But we'll look at the bigger picture as well. I want to get your take on which candidates you think are going to be able to move forward in this increasingly competitive environment. Back, folks, in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back, folks. That's Brother Truckers Tune Downtown, and here we are back for the last segment of the Fallon Forum. Of course, if you're listening on our community-owned station, stick around. We'll have another conversation for you after this. I want to take a second to thank some of the local businesses here in Des Moines that make the program possible. Gateway Market and Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got a catering service. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Sergeant's Garage, located at 6th and College, just north of downtown Des Moines. Thanks to Diversity Insurance. No appointment needed, folks. Stop by at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. And finally, thanks to Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Get all your tax and accounting needs accomplished with Community CPA. Give Ying Sao, the founder and owner, a shout. Okay, folks, welcome back to the program. We've got a little bit of time for a lot of conversation. We'll see how far we get with this. Uh, the presidential campaign is hot and thick here in Iowa. And uh, with me, Channing Dutton, to uh, analyze both what's going on in terms of climate and the bigger picture of who do, we, who do we think might be gaining viability and who might be at risk. Channing? Well, as you know, Ed, my my primary focus is climate. You know, I, I perk up when the candidate uh, uses the language, and I generally dial back when the candidate doesn't. But there's clearly been a sea change in terms of where we are with climate candidates in the in the presidential race. My take is the candidates are all making sense when they talk about climate. The problem is they don't always talk about climate. I mean, we, we heard a speech from Kamala Harris the other day, not a mention of climate. Right. Pete Buttigieg, we heard a speech from him shortly thereafter, a couple hours later. Some mention of climate, not a lot, you know, but when questions are asked, their answers are pretty good. The media, though, however, the media seem to want to ignore the crisis completely and ignore the to, to the largest extent. They won't even talk about climate when the candidates mentioned it, except when Jay Inslee mentioned it, because that was Jay Inslee's focus. Right. Well, and, and you know, the the. Um the emergence of climate is uh, is an important concept, and you are so right that in the beginning, six, seven months ago, eight months ago, you had to beg the candidates, basically hit them over the head. I know that you've done great work in this regard, con- meeting the candidates and demanding that they talk about climate. But with Governor Inslee's help, and but really with the help of, of people all over the country who are waking up to the climate catastrophe, the candidates have transformed and they've started to move climate into that top one, top two, top three position in terms of their written material. Right. Now, the problem is on the ground. Are they talking about climate? Now, here's the breaking news. Um, Pete Buttigieg uh, at Roosevelt High School on Saturday evening spoke about climate. I was keeping track. It was like the eighth thing that he talked about, the eighth issue that he talked about. But previously, it had been 17 with him. Um, there were some familiar faces in the crowd of which you and your team gets a lot of credit encouraging him to talk about climate. But the day before that, I saw his first climate change commercial uh, at 6 o'clock. Uh, running on in the air on and the that's air. That's what I get for not having a TV. I'm glad to know that. Right. So he he now has a climate focused commercial out. Great. And this promotes him into what I would call the group of contenders. Is he the first candidate to do a commercial specifically focused on climate? Well, our friend who we owe a great debt to, Tom Steyer, has been pounding sure, the, has been yeah. pounding the climate message since. Well, and he has the money to do that. <laughs> he, he you know he he has the money. Someone today was asking me, well, do you think he's viable? And I'm going, a billionaire is always viable, and his numbers are not bad. You know, his numbers have demonstrated that he may have staying power that we don't understand. Who else has staying power that is not yet among the top tier? Um, well, 
in 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 terms of the top tier, I or the 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 ones who may make their way into the top tier. Buttigieg just made his way into it. He was already there, right? With he's, you, he's been there since the early early well, this year. Well, in in terms of, and I'm not I'm not sure if you're talking about polling or money, but I'm talking about climate activism, polling, money, climate action, act, everything. And, and he's got the deepest organization here in the state, even deeper than Elizabeth Warren, and that's pretty impressive. Well, I I'm going to push back on that. I think he could have been much stronger on climate you know, four months ago, oh, yeah, three I know, months I ago, agree. two months ago. But when he when he spends his campaign dollars to communicate to the people of Central Iowa that he is a climate candidate, right. that means something to me. And that yes. moves him into the real-time player. Yeah, and I guess what I meant, he, he was uh, polling pretty well back in late spring. No question. Yeah. Yeah, no, so. no, no question. Now, in terms, of, in terms of who are the second-tier candidates who might make a move, well, I've always been interested in Michael Bennett, a very interesting candidate, an intelligent man. He speaks about climate with a with a practical approach to it right. that gives me confidence. But, I don't, but he's not catching fire. He's not, he's not catching. I don't think there's anything unique and uh, and uh, and compelling there. I do see unique and compelling with Tulsi Gabbard. Again, she's really on the outs of the DNC. Yeah, and and, the, and, and uh, communications from her this week just indicate how deep that rift is. Yeah. And even with the Iowa, the Iowa Democratic Party is not including her um, or a bunch of other candidates, for that matter, in the uh, big event coming up on November 1st. So, you know, being on the outs with the DNC and the Iowa Democratic Party is a mixed bag. It shows that you've got some independence and uh, can probably have some appeal to people beyond the Democratic base. But it also excludes you from some pretty important conversations. Tulsi has the ability to go deep. She hasn't demonstrated to me that she's in the top tier of climate candidates. Okay. Yeah. So what about Bernie Sanders? Is he going to stay in? He's going to stay in. He's great. Feel the burn. If he's in the group, I'm going to be very interested. What about Joe Biden? He's in. Really? If you go to JoeBiden.com, look at his climate video, you'd think Jay Inslee wrote it and produced it. All right. And do you think the Ukraine situation is going to hurt Biden? Not at all. All right. I think it'll help him. All right. Well, we need to uh, we, we need to be starting to devote a longer segment of every 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 forum to talk about this because it's getting to be pretty darn interesting. It is, and and it's exciting yeah. because the group of contenders is real. Yeah. Thanks, Channing, for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Channing Dutton, and again, uh, if you want to hear this uh, show um, in, in detail, if you missed any part of it, check out the podcast. It will be available on the Fallon Forum website. And again, we rebroadcast on a bunch of stations. If you're on a community-owned station, stick around. We'll have more conversation. Thanks to Ashley Martinez, our producer, and to Sherry Herdina, our post-production coordinator. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum and happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Yes, I know some are still celebrating Columbus Day, but it's encouraging to see the dramatic shift in recent years from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Of course, as this uh, transition continues, you see some places uh, celebrating both. You see some places um, like in Waterville, Maine, for example, where the mayor there, Mayor Nicholas Isgro, um, doubled down and said the town would be celebrating Columbus Day, not Indigenous Peoples Day. And, of course, that's inviting a protest. Uh, we'll see where that goes. And I won't talk for too long about this because it's becoming more and more obvious that um, Columbus had very few redeeming values <laughs> and that indigenous people in, in, this, on this, in this continent has been treated incredibly wrongly. And, uh, and, and understanding that, recognizing that, writing that, uh, one way we can begin to do that is to indicate, you know, that, 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 um, that Columbus is not – any reason to celebrate. His arrival was, there's, there's nothing to celebrate about that. Uh, hey, he, he found the continent accidentally. My theory is that if the Panama Canal had been built and there'd been a bit of a fog that day, Columbus would have sailed right through and would eventually have actually hit India. But be that as it may, he brought with him a trail of destruction, colonialism, uh, and disease, war, that uh, continues to leave a mark on the indigenous peoples of this continent. So I, I welcome the change. I look forward to it continuing to move uh, in the right direction and encourage people to uh, think about it and to celebrate as you see fit. I do want to take a second. Here's my, one of my contributions to celebrating today is to read you a section from my book, 
Marcher Walker Pilgrim. This is a chapter entitled Zuni Enchantment, and it's, uh, it talks about when we crossed the border from Arizona into New Mexico back in 2014 and the experience we had with the Zuni people. And I first quote the, um, the, the chapter begins with a quote from N. Scott Mamaday, who writes, To encounter the sacred is to be alive at the deepest center of human existence, at Devil's Tower or Canyon de Chelly or the Shakoya Mounds. You touch the pulse of the living planet. You feel its breath upon you. You become one with a spirit that pervades geologic time and space. The wind continues to blow hard during our final day across Arizona. The air is at least dry, but remains cold, windy, and without comfort. Instead of rain and snow, it blows sand, a sand like none I've ever seen, fine as dust and almost imperceptible until you feel it clogging your nose, irritating your eyes, scratching your throat. Worse yet, Sarah, our logistics coordinator, is unable to beg, schmooze, or conjure up a campsite. Seeing no option, she commandeers a thin strip of scrubland sandwiched between the highway and a fence row. With neither a DOT permit nor the landowner's permission, I fret about the possibility of a midnight eviction. Our camp is normally compact. Tonight, it stretches over 100 yards along the highway. The wind rages so hard it takes a team of marchers to set up a tent. Two hold the door open, while another dives inside, lying spread eagle to keep the tent from blowing away. We then secure the corners and sides as best we can in the hard-packed surface, attaching the fly to the ground as tightly as possible. Yet even our tents provide no escape from the high desert's violent thrashing. Mysteriously, the sand finds its way through the tent walls. By morning, a layer of brown-yellow dust covers everything, including our heads, faces, and hands. I mumble to Shearer that the floor of my cheap hotel in St. John's the night before was a slumbering paradise compared to this dusty niche of hell. The next day, we enter New Mexico, where the Zuni people have agreed to let us camp on the grounds of the Zuni Correctional Facility for Juveniles. But with cold, windy weather persisting, officials insist on putting us inside the center instead. For tent dwellers accustomed to sleeping quarters the size of a compact car, the Correctional Facility's 12 jail cells are prime real estate. All are claimed by the time I show up and I settle for floor space in the common area with other late arrivals. This is the first time we've filled the place without arresting a single person, jokes one of the Zuni officers. Beyond the luxury of spending a night in jail, staff provide hospitality above and beyond anything we expect. This evening, they launder our clothes and serve a delicious dinner of standard American fare mercifully devoid of couscous. After dinner, we pile into prison vans. Guards drive us to the heart of Zuni Pueblo to watch traditional dancing in the plaza of the old Catholic Church. We're told that, in no uncertain terms, we're not allowed to take photos or shoot video. The documentary crew is particularly disappointed, but everyone complies. Arriving at the village, I'm unprepared for the uniqueness of the experience. I feel as if I've been transported to a remote country in a simpler time. Zuni Pueblo is home to 11,000 people. It's cozy and walkable, the houses small and simple. Adobe ovens sit outside most homes, and many are in use as we pass. The director of the Zuni Pueblo Main Street program, Wells Maki, explains that people are baking bread and making stews and roasts that will cook through the night. Towering above the Pueblo is the flat-topped mountain called Doa Yalan, a high mesa sacred to the Zuni that outsiders are not allowed to visit. I admire it from the window of the prison van as the evening sun breaks through the clouds, illuminating the mesa's steep escarpment. It's a stunning sight, the mountain's spiritual and physical power manifested in the setting sun's brilliance. I give thanks that such places exist to nurture mind and spirit. As we walk from the van to the church, the drumming and singing grow louder. 
What strikes me most is that nearly everyone is speaking Zuni. Here, on a reservation also unique for its lack of a casino, the language of daily life and commerce is the native tongue. At the church, we are quietly ushered up a winding staircase. The air is tangible with excitement as we reach the rooftop, the plaza below packed with dancers. The moving display of color is like looking through a kaleidoscope, the bright patterns changing as dancers move around the plaza. The drumming and singing are riveting, hypnotic. The experience is a sensory overload, dizzying even, as if we've entered an altered state of consciousness without the assistance of the usual plants or drugs. One mask stands out, drab, earth-colored, disconcerting, a bit frightening even. Six or seven shirtless middle-aged men wear the mask. The mouth is a round hole protruding outward from the face with unnaturally large and hollow eyes. The mask feels not quite human, not entirely right, as if its bearer had crawled out of a deep, forgotten underground cavern to taunt and unnerve other dancers. Mudheads, Wells explains to me later. That's what we call them, mudheads. They're a physical representation of what happens when you procreate with someone from your own clan. They're a symbolic warning against incest. They're scary, but they're also clowns. During intermission, mudheads entertain the crowd, do funny antics, tell stories. We aren't on the roof long before the prison guard says we have to leave. I regret not seeing the mudheads' halftime performance, but when your driver is a prison guard and says it's time to return to jail, you obey. Back at the correctional facility, I ask the guard what time the lights go off. Are you kidding? He laughs. This is a jailhouse. But we're good girls and boys. Didn't do nothing to nobody, I plead with a grin, hoping he'll make an exception. The guard just laughs again, and I feel a bit silly for asking. Marcher is lucky enough to have cells use cardboard, sheets, and tape to cover light fixtures. In the common area, we don't have that luxury. Worse still, the jail's lively acoustics amplify every sound. Nearby sits the bathroom. No door, just a half wall in front of a toilet. Every time a marcher gets up to pee, and this happens often, the resounding flush jars me awake. Another sleep-disrupting sound is amplified by the jail's acoustics as two marchers have sex in their cell. I laugh quietly, imagining this has to also be another first for the correctional facility. In between snippets of sleep, I reflect on the day's many blessings, the sacred mountains, the dances, the language, the mudheads. How alive and vibrant are the Zuni people's spirit and culture. My mind drifts back to 1982 when I lived with the Ojibwe in northern Wisconsin as a Franciscan volunteer. My job was to direct a choir, teach music, and do whatever else my hosts wanted me to do. One day a tribal elder, Mike Nuago, told me his brother Sticker had died and he needed help digging the grave. I obliged and learned that pounding through six feet of stubborn red clay is a tough assignment. The Nuago family thanked me with an invitation to join a group of Ojibwe youth and adults at a language camp. For two weeks, we slept in teepees, built a birch bark canoe, and gathered medicinal plants. We were allowed to speak only the native tongue. For me, that meant living mostly in silence, though I did pick up enough words to identify many animals, some plants, and, most important, whatever was being served for supper. My most lasting impression came from an older Ojibwe woman who helped me make a small basket from birch bark and spruce roots. 35 years later, I still have that basket. It has seen continuous use and sits on my desk holding keys, wallet, glasses, and other personal items. The basket shows the wear and tear of time but still serves its purpose. Most significantly, its presence is a daily reminder of the sustainability of indigenous culture. A basket made of plastic lacks both the durability and aesthetic appeal of one, many, of one made from living beings. It also lacks any spiritual value and even seems to mock those values. 
I think of all the ways in which a plastic basket destroys life. Extracting oil, refining oil, the factory where it's made, polluting the air and water, the impoverished lives of the factory workers, the emissions from trucks and ships transporting the basket from a sweatshop in Southeast Asia to some Walmart in anywhere USA. No environmental degradation occurred in the production of my basket. The only lives lost were those of two noble trees, a birch and a spruce, whose raw materials supplied enough bark and root to make many similarly durable products, whose hollowed trunks provided shelter to generations of mammals, whose decaying bodies fed countless bugs and birds, and whose life force gradually enriched the same soil that had nurtured them while alive. Unlike most of what humanity tosses on the garbage heap of rampant consumption, if one day my basket ends up in a landfill, the remaining scraps of birch and spruce will prove an asset to the area's water and land, not a toxic menace to be covered with dirt and monitored for centuries to come. Thank you, folks. Again, happy Indigenous Peoples Day. That's a reading from my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. We'll be live again next Monday at 11 o'clock.